Father, we recognize that every time a man stands up with your book in his hand, that heaven and hell are at stake. We recognize that people's souls are at stake. We recognize that this morning, and we also recognize that families are at stake this morning. Relationships are at stake. Brothers and sisters, parents and children, grandparents and grandchildren, cousins, aunts, uncles. Families are at stake. Relationships are at stake. And your glory is at stake in all of that. And because of that, Father, we want to pray that your powerful Word, your saving, sanctifying, powerful Word will do its work right now in the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name, Amen. John Patton was a courageous gospel missionary to the New Hebrides Islands. That's what's now Vanuatu, for those of you geographic scholars. But the New Hebrides Islands were in the South Pacific Ocean. And John Patton was from Scotland in the 1800s. He was born in 1824 to parents who passionately worshipped God and loved God with their whole hearts. That's critical for you to know. His parents loved God and worshipped God and served God with their whole hearts. And if you've never read the story, whether the autobiography or a biography of John Patton, I strongly encourage you to do so. He lived an amazing gospel life for the glory of God and the joy of all people for 82 years. For 82 years. Now, in his autobiography, uh, biography, <laughs> Patton describes the influence of his father on him. There was actually a closet in the Patton house where Mr. Patton would retire to after each meal, and the children would follow him there, and he would begin to pray, and they would begin to have family worship together. John had ten brothers and sisters. And they would all gather around their father and their mother and pray to their Lord. Listen to what he says. How much my father's prayers at this time impressed me, I can never explain. Nor could any stranger understand. When on his knees, and all of us kneeling around him in family worship, he poured out his whole soul with tears for the conversion of the lost. And for every personal need and domestic need we all felt as if in the presence of the living Savior and learned to know and love Him as our divine friend. Now, John is writing this in his mid-60s as he's remembering his relationship with his parents. And one scene in particular in John's life sticks out as he's writing his own autobiography in his mid-60s 
He's saying one scene sticks out, and it's when I was, I was going to seminary in Glasgow. And I was going to become a city missionary in the city of Glasgow. And I was leaving my parents. I was leaving my family. I was leaving my hometown. And it was a 40-mile walk from my hometown to the train station in order to get to Glasgow. And this is what he said. My dear father walked with me the first six miles of the way. His counsels and tears and heavenly conversation on that parting journey are fresh in my heart as if it had been but yesterday. And tears are on my cheeks as freely now as then whenever memory steals me away to the scene. For the last half mile or so, we walked on together in almost unbroken silence. My father, as was often his custom, carrying hat in hand while his long flowing yellow hair streamed like a girl's down his shoulders. Why he put that in the autobiography, I don't know. His lips kept moving in silent prayers for me. And his tears fell fast when our eyes met each other in looks for which all speech was vain. We halted on reaching the appointed parting place. He grasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence and then solemnly and affectionately said, God bless you, my son. Your Father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer. In tears we embraced and parted. I ran off as fast as I could and when about to turn a corner in the road where he would lose sight of me, I looked back and saw him still standing with head uncovered where I had left him gazing after me. Waving my hat in adieu, I rounded the corner and out of sight in an instant. But my heart was too full and too sore to carry me further, so I darted into the side of the road and wept for a time. Then rising up cautiously, I climbed the dike to see if he yet stood where I had left him. And just at that moment, I caught a glimpse of him climbing the dike and looking out for me. He did not see me. And after he gazed eagerly, in my direction for a while he got down, set his face toward home, and began to return, his head still uncovered, and his heart, I felt sure, still rising in prayers for me. I watched through blinding tears till his form faded from my gaze, and then hastening on my way, vowed deeply and oft by the help of God to live and act so as never to grieve or dishonor such a father and mother as He had given me. This is one of the most powerful testimonies I've ever read. The profound impact that this father had on his son for the sake of the gospel is both amazing and inspiring. For a man in his mid-sixties to write with tears flowing down his face a vivid account of his departure over 40 years before that, 
speaks to the power of the Father's influence. And it speaks to the depth of their love for one another. And it speaks to the heartbeat that they both shared in their life. This is a picture of a family walking together for the glory of God and the joy of all people. Your walk is your lifestyle. Your walk is how you live your life. And for five weeks, we have called you to walk skillfully, to walk as worshipers, to walk as workers, to walk as husbands and wives. And today, we're going to call you to walk as family members. And I can't address skillfully how to walk in all the various forms of of the family dynamics that exist. I mean, there are so many important family relationships. There are parents and children, brothers and sisters, grandparents and grandchildren, aunts and uncles, nephews and nieces, in-laws and outlaws. That would be a whole sermon in and of itself. But what I want to do is I want to zero in on the most fundamental of family relationships, and that is parents and children. And let... God's Word to parents and children form, help form all the relationships that we have with our family members. And before we look at a text, I want to give you a statement, a principle that, that was absorbed into me this week as I meditated that is so important for you. Whether you are five years old right now or whether you are 55 years old, I want to tell you that the sovereign God of the universe who possesses infinite power and infinite wisdom, saw fit to put you in the family you're in. The sovereign God of the universe, who possesses infinite power and infinite wisdom, saw fit to put you in the family you're in. God knows your needs. He knows your strengths. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your desires. He knows your preferences. He knows your frustrations. He knows everything about you. And in His wisdom and in His power and in His love, He gave you the parents that you have. He gave you the children that you have. He gave you the grandchildren that you have. He wants to do something amazing and something beautiful in your life and in your family. And He's chosen to put you exactly where you are are to do it. Parents, God wants to do something amazing and beautiful in your life. Children, God wants to do something amazing and beautiful in yours. And so to answer the very first question, what is a parent and what is a child? I want to call your attention to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, which for some of you who know your Bibles well, is a bit of an unlikely passage for us to talk about parents and children. What's going on in Matthew chapter 6? Who's talking? Jesus is talking. And He's giving the most famous sermon that's ever been preached. The Sermon on the Mount. Probably the greatest sermon that's ever been preached. And He doesn't address parents and kids' relationships at all. But, He does describe the Father who is in heaven 11 times. He does address the children who know their Father and should glorify their Father the entire passage for 34 verses. And so what we want to do is we want to read Matthew chapter 6 
and look at the relationship that the Heavenly Father has with His spiritual children and get a vision for the Father and His fatherhood and get a vision for the children and their childrenhood, as I invent another word, and we will then help that inform us as to what parents and children ought to be on this earth. Does that make sense? We want to get a big vision of God as Father and His children and then a small picture of earthly parents and their children. Okay, so here we go. This is what I want you to do. As I read it, I want you to ask this question. What does Jesus say about God the Father and His children? What does Jesus say about God the Father and His children? And I, I will likely, I'm not promising you, but I might likely ask for input after I read the passage. Okay, so what does Jesus say about God the Father and His children? Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have their reward. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand Know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who's in secret. And your Father who's in secret will reward you. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one, 
No one, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Now, why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or, what shall we drink? Or, what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. That is powerful. So what does this text say about God the Father and His children? Does anybody want to be bold enough to take the first stab at an observation as to what Jesus says? Yeah, live for God and not man. Well done. does yes he does so he, he knows his children he understands that he's preeminent and he cares for every single thing about them yes sir put God first that's right just like the, the first gentleman said that's exactly what Jesus is saying he does he is a rewarder of obedience very good right. God is concerned about your heart rather than what is on the outside. This is excellent so far. That's right. Don't make a big show of things, but do things in secret. Good. Ask. As a child of God, ask for His provision, protection, provision, uh, and, uh, and forgiveness. Good. Um, I saw another one over here. Yes. Yeah. Personal relationship, Leah said. That's so good. Yes, Susan. Yeah, don't worry. I think he says don't worry explicitly twice, and then he explains why not to worry that entire passage. And, and he says, your father, he knows you. He, he loves you. He cares for your every need. Don't worry about him. Trust him. He does. Yeah. 
So I took one slant. You know how when you, you can read a passage like, like this, 34 chapters, and you just you can't say everything um, unless you just study it for a long, long time. Listen, listen to what I said about the father and his children. Okay? As I was thinking about parents and children, um, I just asked the question, what does it say about the father and his children? Listen, the father, I believe y'all will follow this, hates self-glorifying righteous deeds but loves humble service to the needy. The Father hates self-promoting insincere prayers, but loves secret, genuine expressions of worship to Him. The Father hates wordiness and redundancy in prayer, but loves simplicity and kingdom priorities in prayer. Loves simplicity and kingdom priorities. The Father hates showy displays of spirituality, but loves a resolve to worship Him with a humble spirit. He hates personal greediness and split allegiances, but loves kingdom investment and singular devotion. Y'all are tracking with me, right? He hates the sin of distrusting His love. Susan. And distrusting His provision, but loves the obedience of seeking Him and trusting Him in all things. He rewards His children with everything, get this, with everything they need for a life of glorifying Him and enjoying Him. Notice that when Jesus says He will reward you, He will reward you, Jesus didn't describe the nature of that reward. He's saying, trust Him even in the reward. He will give you whatever you need for life and godliness, both now and forevermore. And so His children should honor Him. This whole passage is about Jesus telling the children of God what they should do. How to honor the Father. And He says, joyfully serve people in need. Personally pursue fellowship with God, your Father. Love what He loves. Hate what He hates. Like in that prayer that I think you were observing, Trina, love is holiness. Love is kingdom. Hate sin and seek to be forgiven of it and to forgive others of it. Invest in His kingdom and be totally committed to His glory. Trust His love, trust His provision, and seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Now, what that tells me about God as Father is that He loves His children. First of all, now this is implicit. This is something that I want you to, to wrap your mind around just by the mere nature that Jesus is here giving this sermon. Because I want to say that God is a Father who loves His children sacrificially through the gift of His Son. Like, He dwelled in perfect harmony with His Son for eternity past. Where there was Beautiful fellowship and sweet, intimate love between them. And He is willing to, to rid Himself of the presence of His Son in order to come to the children and live the life that they're supposed to live and die the death that they deserve. And it's that Son who's actually giving us this message. So that's why I say, number one, God is a Father who loves His children sacrificially and then trains His children wisely 
toward humble worship. Provides for His children sufficiently, like everything that you need for life and godliness, and rewards His children appropriately. Now I know I'm not saying everything about God here, but according to Matthew 6 and a little bit of systematic understanding of Scripture, listen, God is a Father who loves His children sacrificially, trains His children wisely, provides for His children sufficiently, and rewards His children appropriately. Okay? And the Father's children then are blessed to belong to Him. And instructed to obey Him gladly, serve Him humbly, trust Him fully, treasure Him deeply, and seek Him passionately their whole lives. That's a picture of God the Father's relationship with His spiritual children. Okay? So how does that picture frame and shape our understanding of earthly parents' relationship with their children and the children's relationship with their parents. Okay, so, so if you take this picture of God the Father and His children and then combine it with all the other passages of Scripture that deal with parenting and childrening, I believe these two definitions are biblically accurate. So let's look first at what is a parent. A parent is a mother or father who sacrificially loves, intentionally trains, faithfully protects, appropriately rewards, and sufficiently provides for his or her children as an expression of the Heavenly Father's love for His children. Can you say amen to that? Amen. I'll say it again to give you time to write it down for you note takers. A mother or father who sacrificially loves, intentionally trains, faithfully protects, appropriately rewards, and sufficiently provides for his or her children as an expression of the Heavenly Father's love for His own children. Okay, what is a child? What is a child? And by child, you understand that I'm meaning about that direct relationship from mother and father or parent to the son or daughter. I'm not, we're talking, not talking about children just in general, children specific. Now, I have, I have, I've defined it in the masculine, but I'll repeat it as well in the feminine so as for you um, ladies and girls to, to feel the weight of it too. But I just got tired of putting his or her, his or her, his or her, his or her. Just so you know, that's what happened. All right, a son who honors his parents always, obeys his parents when he is small, blesses his parents when he is big, and loves his parents in all seasons of life as an expression of his reverence for God, the Heavenly Father. You can continue to write if you're taking notes. I'll repeat it in the feminine. A daughter who honors her parents always, obeys her parents when she is small, blesses her parents when she is big, and loves her parents in all seasons of life as an expression of her reverence for God, the Heavenly Father. 
I want you to know that as a preacher, you're constantly meditating and constantly thinking about what you're presenting to the congregation. And I want to tell you, I want to confess to you that 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 definition is not as full as it probably should be. But I believe that everything in that definition is biblically accurate and that if parents would fulfill that responsibility and if children would fulfill that responsibility, man, the kingdom would grow. We would have joy. There would be salvation to the lost. Okay? So what we're going to do, what we're going to do is we're going to ask first the question, what are the responsibilities of a parent? What are the responsibilities of, of, of a parent? If you wanted to attach one specific text to the answer, um, it would be Ephesians 6.4. Fathers, don't provoke your children in anger. Don't provoke your children to anger. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And I want to kind of hone in just on when Paul says, bring them up. Bring them up. Bring them up. Okay, what does it mean, Paul, to bring our children up in the fear and admonition of the Lord? That sounds awesome, but what does that practically look like? What, what are my real responsibilities here? And so we're going to take the definition, and that's how we're going to look at the responsibilities. And so parents, your first responsibility is to sacrificially love your children. Sacrificially love them. That is, pursue their highest good. Spiritually, physically, emotionally, and relationally. Like if you're saying, well, but what does that even mean? Well, look, ask yourself the question, what is best for my child spiritually? What is best? What's best for my child is to hear about Christ. To see a demonstration of the love of Christ. To, to, my child's best interest is for to him or to her to feel their need for Jesus Christ. Okay? Well, then if that's, if that's their highest good, then you need to do things in order for them to hear about Christ, to see Christ, and to feel their need for Christ. Well, if you ask the question, what is, my, what is best for my child physically? Well, to eat healthily, to, to sleep soundly, to exercise, you know, to grow. Well, then do things that will help your kid eat healthily and grow physically and sleep soundly to prosper physically. Do that. Like, don't, don't ignore it. Don't say it's not important. It's important. The father provides for his spiritual children physically. How much more should physical fathers provide for their physical children? What is best for my child emotionally? Well, I believe that as God's children feel loved by Him and accepted by Him, no matter what our performance is, no matter how wonderful or woeful it is, God's children always feel like God's children. Well, in the same way, your children always ought to feel like your children. Loved, accepted, cared for, no matter how woeful or wonderful their performance is. What is best for my child relationally? Like, my child needs to learn how to share with others. My child needs to learn how to serve others. My child needs to learn how to converse with others. Well, then what you need to do is you need to put your child in situations where they can grow to share with others, to listen to others, to talk to others, to engage with others relationally so that they can be a part of building the kingdom of the Heavenly Father as well. 
So if you purpose in your heart to ask those questions, how will my child prosper spiritually? How will my child prosper physically? How will my child prosper relationally? How will my child prosper emotionally? And when you answer those questions, purpose to do those things. Now, if you do those things, you will have to make a lot of sacrifices. You will have to sacrifice couch time. You have to sacrifice hobby time. You have to sacrifice personal time. You have to sacrifice TV time. Because if you're really wanting to be a parent that images the fatherhood of God, then you're going to make significant sacrifices in order to make that happen. But that's what God calls you to. And listen, this is what I want you to know, parents. That while it is a sacrifice, it is joy. And this is, let me tell you something else. It's what's in your best interest. It's what's best for you. If it wasn't what was best for you, God wouldn't have given you children in the first place and He wouldn't have commanded you to love them that way in the second place. But it's best for you. Trust it. Sacrificially love them. Second, intentionally train them. Intentionally train them. How are you going to do that? Write this, keep writing this down because this is, this is a serious threefold aspect to intentionally train them. Give them formative instruction corrective discipline, and a living example. Give them formative instruction, corrective discipline, and a living example. Formative instruction is a term that I believe Ted Tripp coined. But what, what does that word mean? That, that, that's a big word. That's like a $2 word. But, but what it means is that it's instruction that shapes and forms the thinking of your children. It's instruction that shapes and forms the thinking of your children. It's teaching your children the ways of the Lord. Your job as a parent is to provide a biblical structure for all of life. How do you do this? Well, you read the Bible with your kids. You discuss the Bible. You memorize the Scripture with your children. You pray with your kids. You help your kids think about everything through a biblical grid. Now, let's make a, let's make a very um, plain observation. All of life is a classroom. All of life is a classroom. Children are being taught and told how to think everywhere they go all of the time. At home, at school, at basketball practice, at ballet practice, at the grocery store, on the television, kids are being bombarded with information and they soak it all in like a sponge. I mean, it literally amazes me the, the rapidity in which my children learn facts and, and, and multiplication tables and everything else. It is amazing the absorption that they have. I'm jealous. Alright? It is your job to interpret everything that they see and help them to interpret it through a biblical lens, through a gospel lens, through a kingdom lens. That's your job as a parent. I'll, right now, me and the boys watch one television show, a contemporary television show we watch. It's a reality show. It's an entertainment show. And we watch it at about 15-minute increments. And I, I, uh, I gauge it, and I look at what we can or cannot watch because we tape it. We never watch anything live. Um, and you guys know why we would not watch anything live. But, but why do I do that? Why do we sit down and watch some reality entertainment television show 
Because all of the things that, that we're training our boys to do and to be and to think, and act, they've got to be able to interpret life, like life out in the world, with the lens that we're giving them. And I don't want them to be left alone to interpret that when we throw them out at 13 or 15 or 17 or 19 when they go to a school or go to a camp or, or they see a screen for the first time. I want to help them interpret all of life. I want them to help them interpret music and entertainment and, and ideas and, and passions and all of these things. That is my job. My job is to help my children interpret their life through a God-sized lens and a God vision. And so... Your job is to give formative instruction and to help them interpret their life in that way. Second, underneath this, uh, of training them is corrective discipline. Corrective discipline. That's discipline that corrects disobedient behavior and aims at the heart of your child. It's discipline that, that corrects disobedient behavior and aims at the heart of your child. I mean, maybe some of you have been this parent, but have you ever seen the parent, you know, running around in Winn-Dixie trying to grab the kid? If I get you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat you! You know, I'm going to do that. I, I, you know, I've seen that so many times, and I've just seen, you know, dads, you know, grab kids up, or I've just seen, I've just seen parents just, whip, you know, whip their kids right in the middle of a store or a restaurant or something, and like, wow, and, and then once it's over, the, the parent doesn't want to have anything to do with the kid, and the kid doesn't want to have anything to do with the parent, and it's really... It's really an ugly thing because you see the point of discipline is repentance and restoration. It's the whole point. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. I have asked permission from Carson if he could help me illustrate discipline. Um, so uh, <laughs> everything but the most painful part of it. All right. So. So, uh, theoretical, this is strictly theoretical, but I have instructed Carson multiple times not to throw the football in the living room because his brother has put together a puzzle globe. If you've ever put together a puzzle globe, it's hard, it takes a lot of time, but when you're finished with it, you're really proud of it, okay? And so, I've told Carson, let's don't throw the football in the living room. And Carson throws the football in the living room and destroys the globe that his brother, that his brother made. Yes. All right. So Carson, go to the laundry room. All right, we're in the laundry room. Carson, what did Dad say about throwing the football in the laundry room? Not to. Not to. Did you do it? Yes. Okay. Is that obedience or disobedience? It's disobedience. Now, let me ask you this, Carson. Is, is disobedience safe or dangerous? dangerous? It's dangerous, isn't it? Because when you get outside of your parents' instructions, then you're entering into a place of danger. And a lot of things can happen. And we don't want you to be in that danger, but you decided to enter it. Okay? So the Scripture tells me, I've got to discipline you and, in order to correct you. Okay? And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to discipline you with two swats. And I want you to assume the position and do not move. And I'm going to discipline you, okay? All right, so we will fast forward at this point. All right. <laughs> All right. Carson, do you have anything that you want to say to me? I forgive you, buddy. I absolutely do. 
There's somebody else's forgiveness that we need. Whose is it? God's. Well, well, Carson, I want to ask you to pray and ask God for forgiveness, and then I'll pray for you uh, as well, okay? Lord, please forgive me for disobeying my mom and dad, and please help me to obey the next time for your glory. Father, I want to just pray for Carson. I want to thank you for his turning, and would you help him to make better decisions next time? In your name, amen. I love you, bud. All right, you can go have a seat. All right, give Carson a hand. Carson, how... Well, no, I was about to ask you how many times have we done that. Don't answer that. All right. <laughs> Don't answer that. Okay, so... <laughs> so, corrective discipline is discipline that corrects disobedient behavior and aims to shepherd the heart of your children. Now, I'm not going to tell you that every time we discipline, it looks exactly like that. But I will tell you, that's the pattern. And if you don't go by the pattern, parents, you're going to get yourselves in trouble and you're going to get your relationship with your children in trouble. And you might even get yourself in trouble with the law. Okay? We've got to be, we've got to be loving and careful and helpful and shepherding with our kids in corrective discipline. Alright, and then the third way in which you train is by a living example. Alright, so you got formative instruction and corrective discipline and then a living example. I mean, the best and most effective way to intentionally train your kids is to live a life of worship and fellowship and discipleship and mission. Like, if you worship God through prayer and Bible reading and singing and gathering together for corporate worship, as you just worship God, your kids are looking at you. They're listening to you. They're watching you. As you fellowship with people and partner with them in gospel love, they're looking at you. They're watching you. They're listening to you. As you pursue discipleship where you want to learn and grow and you don't sit in sermons like a knot on a log and wait for it to be over and, and you, don't, you don't care what anybody else has to think about the Bible or God or the Gospel and you just do your own thing in your own time. No, but you listen and you learn and you absorb God's Word and then you try to give God's Word to others as you do disciples, ladies, maybe other younger ladies or men, other younger men. As they watch your life and the investment of it, as they listen to your words of discipleship, they are absorbing everything and as they look at your gospel mission and how you give money to the kingdom of God and as how you walk out and live out a gospel life and share the gospel with a person at the grocery store or with a person at the park or you plan your time in order to spend time with somebody who doesn't even go to your church and you're like, Mom, why are we spending time with this person? Because we're trying to love them with the gospel. They hear that, they see that, they listen to that, they experience it and by that living example it makes a profound impact on the rest of their life. I guarantee it. Now, when I was a kid, I, I watched my parents do the living example thing all the time. I remember my mom would get up at 4.30, 5 o'clock, and she would get in the car and, and drive to the church and begin, and begin um, making breakfast for high school students on Friday mornings at 5 a.m. Or maybe, even, maybe it was 4.30, I can't remember why. Because those kids were going to come and hear the gospel at a prayer breakfast if they got gravy biscuits and bacon and eggs and all the things that high schoolers never get but love to have, right? I saw her make those sacrifices. I saw my dad coach Little League Baseball and go into the projects and pick 
little boys up and drive them back to practice and coach them up and then get them in his car and go buy Hardee's and buy them a hamburger because they didn't have a hamburger. And then they would drive them back home and drop them off. He didn't have a dad, didn't have much of a family. And I saw my dad do that year after year and season after season. And I saw my parents respect one another the entirety of the time that I lived under their roof. And I just want to tell you the sacrifices that they made, the respect that they had for one another made a profound impact on my life today. And it shapes and forms what I love, what I hate, what I value, and how I live. Do not underestimate the impact that you're having on your children. I want to say one more thing before we move on. It's not what you say first that counts. It's not what you say best that counts. It's what you say the most that counts when you influence your children. And the thing that you say the most is the life that you live. How are you living? Formative instruction, corrective discipline, and a living example. That's the best way to impact your children for the glory of God. Faithfully protect them. Faithfully protect them. Protect them from physical danger, emotional danger, spiritual danger. You know, kids have an innate radical commitment to themselves. I don't know if y'all figured that out or not. And this can get them in a lot of danger and in a lot of trouble. And it is our job as parents to protect them physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Uh, The world is a dangerous place because it has dangerous people and dangerous devices. And it is your job to protect them from clear and present dangers. Now listen, I, I am not trying to impose on you something that is just a matter of conviction. But for me and my house, we are not a screen family. You, you just don't get to turn on the television as a child. You don't get to have your own screen in your own room, especially not with the internet. You don't get to go upstairs and play PlayStation or whatever for however long you want to. Why? Because it is my job to protect my kids from all the dangers that are lurking at every place in this world. And the fastest and easiest place for them to get, that danger to get to them is through the screens. And so I would encourage you to protect your kids from physical danger. Protect them from emotional danger. And spiritual danger, like kids have a a temptation to experience the feelings of rejection and inadequacy and isolation, depression, overwhelming fear. Like I remember being so afraid as a child. I watched, I'd watched a couple of scary movies as a young child and I'm telling you, it's like I didn't sleep for a week. I just remember being so terrified. But you know, it is your job to protect your kids emotionally from things that are going to make them afraid. I love the fact that my kids, they go to bed at night and I'm telling you, it is the rarest of occasions that they come to us because they're scared. I mean, it is rare. I am so thankful for that because they have a confidence in their parents and a confidence in their God. That's really a good thing. Uh, Spiritual danger, protect them from false teaching, protect them from bad examples. Like, if I have to hear one more parent who says, yeah, we left such and such a church and went to such and such a church and the preaching is not very good and I don't like it, but they've got a killer kids program. 
If I, just, if I have to hear that one more time, I think I'm going to scream. Like, like, God has never commanded that you take your kids to a church with an awesome kids program. What He has commanded is for you to train them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. So protect them spiritually, but faithfully do so. Okay, let me give you these last two. Appropriately reward them. Appropriately reward them. Now I'm on a little bit of a shaky ground. I want to say reward them in accordance to their faithfulness, not as a negotiator trying to broker a deal. But reward them as a gracious parent trying to reflect your heavenly Father. Like, you may want to reward them with blessings like going to the park. Or like getting a pair of shoes if they've got on the track team. Or, or an ice cream cone every now and then. I mean, rewards are different for every different child, but, but blessing your children with unexpected gifts are a way to demonstrate the extravagant grace and unexplainable goodness of God, your Heavenly Father. I want to make this warning, though. Don't make life about physical and material rewards. Make life about knowing God and enjoying Him forever. Make life about the satisfaction of loving God through all of the arenas of life. I remember when I was 10, I was playing cup ball. For those of you who know what cup ball is, take a plastic Coca-Cola cup, ball it up, and basically play a modified version of baseball with your friends either before or after the, the real game that you played. Okay, And I was playing cup ball one-on-one with Ricky Price, and we were just playing it when I was 10 years old. And he says, hey, man, you thinking about being on the all-star team? And I said, well, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it'd be a great thing. And, and he said, my mama told me that if I made the all-star team, she would buy me a four-wheeler. I was 10 years old. Like, I didn't even understand that. Like, what? what? I'm thinking to myself as a 10-year-old, like, I love baseball. I love, I just love hitting. If we, if we could practice for two more weeks, I want to be on that team. If I can take more ground balls, if I can be with the fellas and play home run derby, I want to be on that team. Not because I'm going to get something because of it. Now listen, listen. I only felt that way because I had parents that weren't constantly dangling out um, carrots. Say, if you do this, then we'll give you this. If you do this, then we'll give you this. That is no way to parent. The way to parent is to help your children understand that life is a gift. It is given to you by God. And in every arena of life, you can enjoy it as you enjoy Him and worship Him and serve Him and honor your parents. And as you do that, you will find joy in everything that you do because you're not looking beyond to the next thing. You're not looking as to what I'm going to get if I do well, if I perform excellently. It's not about that. It's about enjoying the Lord and enjoying His provisions. Okay, so your responsibilities. Oh, one, one more here. Uh, sufficiently provide for them. I'll put this one last. Provide for them physically, emotionally, spiritually. And I just use the word sufficiently. Yeah, sufficiently. Because it is not your responsibility to give them everything they want. It's not your responsibility to give, you, to, 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 um, give them everything that they've dreamed to have. It's your job to provide for them what is sufficient for life and godliness. That's it. That's your responsibility and so provide them with it. Okay, I want to say one more thing under this heading of parents. 
you're going to fail miserably. You are probably, I don't, I don't think I can say this unequivocally, but you're probably going to fail in some way every day. I know I have and that I do. But the good news is that I have a heavenly Father who never fails me. And He never fails you. And He loves you and trains you and forgives you and cares for you. And as you put your life and your parenthood into the arms of the Heavenly Father, He not only forgives you, He not only loves you, but He helps you get back on the same path and you don't have to live with the guilt and the condemnation of being a bad parent. No, you get to nail that to the cross with the hands of Jesus and you get to walk forward in the power of a resurrected Jesus who said that I have all authority in heaven and on earth and I'll give you everything that you need for life and godliness. All right. Yeah, we're in trouble. All right. All right, so let's do this. Let's look uh, briefly at the child's responsibilities, and we'll, we'll close it at that. We'll close it at that after we look at the child's responsibilities. I would attach Exodus 20, verse 12, and then that Ephesians 6, 1 to 3, is, is really the, the main passages here. Exodus 20, verse 12 God is revealing the law to Moses at Sinai for all of the people of Israel. He's revealing His will. And He's basically said, man, I've been a good father. I've been a great father to you. I have delivered you out of the bondage that you were in in Egypt. I have delivered you out of the house of slavery. I have delivered you out of the shackles and chains of Pharaoh's tyranny. I've delivered you out of that. I've brought you through. And now you're about to enter into the promised land. And this is what I want you to do. And in verse 12, he says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. It's the fifth commandment. Now it's strategically placed immediately after the first four commands. And what do those first four commands deal with? They deal with worship. They deal with loving God. Remember, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any carved image about me or of me. You shall not take my name in vain. You shall, not, uh, you shall remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And then he says, you shall honor your father and your mother. Like, I'm not trying to be disrespectful. I'm trying to be very respectful. But we might expect that not murdering somebody might come a little ahead of honoring your parents. Like, we would expect that. But why does he say, honor your father and mother right after those first four? Because it is the parent's job to teach the children to worship God and love God and honor God with their lives. It's a natural flow. And then he goes on to say, it will go well with you in the land that I'm promising if you honor your parents. We take that passage so often, church, and we, we think to immediately, we think to small children growing up in, in the house of these adults and that this is the passage that we're going to go to to teach our little children because that's who it's for. And I am convinced that what God has in mind is not just little, little bitty kids. What He has in mind is a group of adults who are sons and daughters of adult parents and are saying, 
Honor your father and mother as they've taught you the gospel. Or if they've taught you my ways, if they've taught you my redemption, as they're getting older and you need to provide for them, as you need to protect them, as you need to honor them, as you need to bless them, as you need to be with them with your presence, that if you're not going to honor your parents, then it's not going to go well with you in the land that I'm promising. Like, if you're unwilling to reverence and honor and respect them, then what in the world would make me think that you're going to reverence and honor and respect me? Now, is it for kids? Absolutely it is. But it's also for adults. Because God has in His heart for all children of their parents to bring honor to them. Now, the verb honor, in the most literal sense, means to make heavy. To make weighty. Spiritually, it means to honor, to hold in high esteem, to magnify their worth, to treat them as having special value. So the opposite of honoring your parents would be to treat them as nothing, to hold them in low regard, to despise them, to treat them just like you treat everybody else in your life. That's dishonoring them. And the fact is we all have a natural tendency to take our our parents for granted, to belittle their worth, to make light of their circumstances, and to even begrudge them. God knows it, and that's why He gives us a very clear instruction to honor them, and He gives us a promise that if you do honor them, it will go well with you. Now, as you know, I'm going to have to now streamline some things. And I'm going to say just like, just like parents fail, children fail. But we have a Savior who is a perfect son. And He obeyed His earthly father perfectly. He obeyed His earthly mother Perfectly. Like he honored Mary. Do you remember when Mary was at the wedding and she approaches Jesus and, and, and she says, Jesus, do something about the wine that's gone. You can do something about this. And he says, woman, it's not my time. But then what does he turn around and do? He turns the water into wine. Why? He wanted to honor his mother. When he's on the cross and he's about to die and and he's going to leave his mother alone, a widow, what does he do while he's paying the price for my sins and your sins? He looks over at John the Apostle and he says, this is your mother. And he says to her, this is your son. He is providing for her. He is honoring her in the midst of his own death. And not only that, he honors his heavenly Father, his eternal Father when he's in the garden and he says, Father, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And he goes all the way to the cross. Why? To honor the desire of his Father. We have a Savior who is also a Son who has perfectly obeyed and perfectly honored on our behalf that every time we fail as children, we can seek His forgiveness and be granted a clean slate and be empowered to be the sons and daughters that He's called us to be. Okay. Let me just say these things so that they're on, that they're on record. Children, obey. Let's go to the next slide. Obey your parents when you're small. Next, bless your parents when you're big and love your parents. That is, pursue the highest good of your parents in all seasons of your life. And it looks different depending on the season.
All right, church, thank you so much for your patience. What I want you to do, you can leave that slide up there for right now for those who are going to take notes, but if you can, get into a position of prayer. If you can get into a position of prayer right now, I just want to, I want to ask you a couple of questions just for the sake of meditation and application, okay? So focus in right now on the calling of a family member, on the calling of mothers and fathers and sons and daughters. And I would love it if you close your eyes right now. Because in closing your eyes, I want you to get a glimpse of John Patton and his father on that country road almost 200 years ago. Get a picture of John Patton with his dad on that country road I want to ask, what made their love for one another so deep? The Gospel. What made their respect for one another so strong? The Gospel. What gave them peace as they parted ways for years? The Gospel. What gave them hope? as they lived in different worlds. The Gospel! I tell you, it's the Gospel! It's the good news of salvation through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the tie that, you, that binds. That's what brings unity. That's what brings harmony. That's what brings joy. That's what brings love. That's what brings forgiveness. That's what brings reconciliation. That's what brings patience. That's what brings kindness. That's what brings everything that honors God and, and glorifies His name. It is the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. And if you want to walk skillfully in this world, then you will redeem the time as a family member. If you want to know the riches and the depth of, of the life God intends for you, you will redeem the time with the Gospel as a parent and as a child. And I call you to this vision today. Don't settle for anything else, dads. Don't settle for anything less, moms. Don't make excuses. Don't say that you're going to change tomorrow. By the grace of God, by the mercy of God, by the love of God, by the Word of God, change today that you might know the sweetness of a beautiful relationship with your parents and your children.